Well, it is well with our souls, but it's not too well with our country right now. Significant and growing element in American politics has now become openly hostile towards Christianity. You see that, you know that. Hostile towards biblical teaching, biblical morality, definitions of male and female, you name it. Since that's true, we American Christians are, for the first time, talking about, talking seriously about, not if but when, government-led persecution will come against Bible Christians right here in our dear old U.S. of A. Growing up in America, it was almost unthinkable that freedom of religion would be eroded, much less attacked or seen as something that was not important. It was not thinkable that Christians would be forced against their conscience and Scripture to endorse and sanctify sinful practice. But the twin evils of political correctness and postmodernism threaten for the first time the church's safety. And every Christian who takes a public stand for biblical morality, when persecution comes, we will be fellowshipping with untold millions of Christians who have suffered for their faith in church history and who are suffering for their faith in other countries right now. Peter wrote in 1 Peter 5, 8 and 9, be of sober spirit, be on the alert, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. September 10th, 2018, just a month ago, Fox News article online reports persecution going on right now in China. It says this, the Chinese government is destroying crosses, burning Bibles, closing churches, and forcing Christian believers to sign papers renouncing their faith as the crackdown on religious congregations in Beijing and several provinces intensifies. It goes on, the suppression of religious freedoms is part of an official campaign to sinicize religion by demanding loyalty to the atheist communist party and removing any potential challenge to the party's power in the country. Those are our brethren. Many through history also have tried to stamp out the scriptures even prior to the life of Jesus and the beginning of the church during what we call that intertestamental period The Jewish nation came under the sway of a wicked ruler named Antiochus Epiphanes. He persecuted the Jews. He killed many of them. He profaned the temple, sacrificed swine on the altar. Of course, you know, pigs were unclean animals. 
He forced the Jewish people to worship idols that he worshipped. He also tried to destroy copies of the Hebrew Scriptures, our Old Testament. Josephus, in his uh, Antiquities of the Jews, records this about that time. He writes, And if there were any sacred book of the law found, it was destroyed. And those Jews with whom they were found miserably perished also. In 1 Maccabees, in chapter 1, verses 56 and 57, in the Apocrypha, which is not inspired, but it tells us what happened in that intertestamental period, it talks about that same attack on the Scriptures. It says, The books of the law which they found they tore to pieces and burned with fire. Where the book of the covenant was found in the possession of anyone, or if anyone adhered to the law, the decree of the king condemned him to death. Imagine that. They found a Bible in your home, and now you die. Did the king's persecution work to silence the Jews and to squelch the faith? The answer was what? His plan actually backfired. The persecution provoked even more intense interest and examination of the Scriptures by the Jews. Those who did the persecuting seemed to make the same mistake over and over throughout church history. They look at the weak and the vulnerable people and they, they think they can get rid of them because they're without power. They have no position. And so they say, we're just going to use our government authority to tell them what they can do and can't do. But they never seem to quite factor God into the equation, right? It is God's Word. They can no more eliminate it than they can eliminate Him and His mouth. He will not allow His Word to be boxed up and put in the storage. Persecution in America as it starts will not be so overt or brazen as it is in China. It will start, as we are already seeing, by making it seem immoral to denounce immorality or to speak against someone else's belief system or to begin to lose certain privileges, whether it's tax-exempt status or whatever, for not complying with the law. If you study church history, you know that people have periodically tried to suppress the gospel of Jesus and the Scriptures, and they've tried in a number of ways Evil has many inventions. Sometimes they were overtly, sometimes they're covertly. But after 2,000 years of trying, even violent attempts, the gospel of Jesus Christ continues to spread to more and more hearts today. You and I see that. I imagine believers hundreds of years ago who were suffering persecution might have wondered, will there ever be a day like today? And will there ever be churches like there are today? And yet here they are. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus continues to spread. The gospel to this day stands undefeated. Can't defeat it. Now I like rooting for a team that is undefeated. My teams never are. I mean never. But this we can root for because it is undefeated. There were many ancient religions, you know, and ancient prophets once they had enthusiastic hordes of devotees worshiping based upon the set of writings of a prophet or some mystical revelations. The, the ancient world had many religions. They had a plethora of religions and those that followed it. Today, the average person in educated 
circles and knows nothing at all about these religions, nothing at all about their leaders. But Jesus Christ and his life and his cross and his resurrection, we have that proclaimed on every continent in the world today. The gospel's indestructible nature is part of the undeniable evidence for the truthfulness of Christianity. The unbreakable scriptures through the millennia now have become their own apologetic. Nobody can seem to get rid of them. Not Roman emperors, not atheistic communists, not violent Muslims, not dictators of various stripes. Nobody silences Jesus' good news. Jesus prophesied that very thing in Matthew 24, 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. What an arrogant thing for someone to say, unless their words were God's words, right? By the way, that tells you he knew he was God. Jesus also predicted this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come, Matthew 24, 14. God's word gets out. It gets out to every corner of the planet. It runs, as Paul said we need to pray for in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 1. So it brings me great pleasure to open today to a portion of God's Word that reveals the attempts of powerful rulers to stamp out Christianity, put it all out right in its inception, before it began to spread, before it became a world religion, before hardly anyone knew about it, to try to put it out right then and there and to see their frustration in doing that and to see their failure and how that lifts my confidence and faith. Indeed, that's the lesson I want all of us to get out of the passage today, their utter failure and the triumph of the Word of God. The passage is Acts 5. We'll read verses uh, 17 through 42, but I don't, since it's a long section, I don't want to read it all at the beginning this time. We'll kind of read it as we go, as it unfolds to us. Acts chapter 5, turn there, verses 17 through 42. And in this passage... We're going to see that the gospel triumphed over four attempts to suppress it, four attempts to suppress it. I want you to look at these different attempts because there's some of the wiles of the devil, there's some of the strategies for putting out Christianity and just see how each one didn't work, not in this situation and then we can project that also into the future and see how that didn't work there. Attempt number one, and this is in verses 17 to 26, attempt number one to stamp out the gospel and and the triumph of the gospel is this. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be jailed. I'm going to put it that way. The gospel of Jesus Christ cannot be imprisoned. It cannot be jailed. Look at verse 17. But the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, that is, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. They laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison, and taking them out, he said, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple, the whole message of this life. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. 
But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, we found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. But someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. We'll stop there. Now, you know, throughout the book of Acts, Luke keeps explaining and documenting the spread of the gospel. Starts in Jerusalem, where Jesus said it had to start. Why? That's the city of the king. That's David's capital. That's where Jesus is going to return. That is the center and the locus of what God does on earth. And it had to start there. But Luke shows how it began to spread from Jerusalem and then outward. But its spread was not unopposed. The Christian message did not run freely without any resistance. This section is a clear example of failed attempts to to bottle it up and not let it get out. We actually see several attempts, coupled with the frustration of those who oppose the work of God. Indeed, the irony in this account is rich, for the victory ends up belonging not to the ones in power, but to this message, to the gospel. The structure of the passage itself kind of points to this irony. The passage is arranged by the juxtaposition of the high priest's actions to thwart the gospel versus then God taking a very simple action to to free his word again. Please notice back in verses 17 and 18, the high priest's action. He first decides we're going to imprison the apostles and bring them to account. Verse 17, the high priest rose up along with all of his associates, the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy And verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles and put them in a public jail. This action by the high priest is a reaction to what we covered before in verses 12 through 16. Do you remember that? The incredible spreading testimony by the apostles, the incredible miracles that were taking place from their hands. Remember Peter's shadow was just falling on people and they were getting healed. And there were then large numbers of conversions. They can't even count the number in the church anymore. It's gone from being a megachurch. It has tens of thousands of people. Indeed, the movement, this Jesus movement in Jerusalem is really taking over all of Jerusalem. It's beyond, it seems beyond control. It's filling the entire city. This was great apostolic success, success way beyond the boundaries of Jesus in his own ministry. Remember what he promised? I'm going to go to the Father. I'll send you the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he'll convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. He said to the apostles, you'll do greater works than I do because the Spirit comes. That's what we're seeing now. It's growing. It's successful. And this just angers and frustrates the Sadducees immensely. They are the most powerful Jewish sect of Jesus' day. They're in charge in Jerusalem. They're in charge of the temple, the centerpiece of Judaism. They were looked up to for the large, large part by the Jewish people. The Jewish people revered them even though they saw some hypocrisy in them. The Sadducees had maneuvered brilliantly. They were in cahoots with the Roman 
governor and the Roman government to maintain their power, at least a measure of their power, to work along with them. They had a nice gig. They had a nice system. But this movement was not something that they had, had thought would happen. It's not something they had calculated. And it didn't now seem to be something they were able to contain. Where did this come from? More frustration to them. And then what motivated them, you can see, is not just their frustration, but they were filled with what? Jealousy. Jealousy. They saw the people going after Peter. They saw them following the 12 apostles. They wanted to keep the Jewish masses under their sway. We'll tell you what to believe and what to do, and here's how to handle this situation. You follow us. So jealousy gripped them. You know, jealousy is an evil attitude of the heart. It is. Sometimes you may struggle with jealousy. Jealousy is an evil attitude of the heart that results in much sin. In James 3, verse 16, we're told, where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. Do you know how many evil things come out of the root of jealousy? Boy, watch out for this in your heart. When you're looking at someone else and they're successful and that's what you want to be and you're upset at the way they look, the success in the workplace, whatever it may be, jealousy robs you of joy. Jealousy, jealousy does not allow you to be full of the Spirit. It, it robs your ability to serve the Lord where you're looking at the situation of life that other people have, the success that they have. And, and God wants to do something in your life and God has a good plan for your life because you follow him and you can't enjoy that because you're looking at what someone else gets to enjoy. What a terrible thing. It's a prison in and of itself. Jealousy locks you into a prison and you can't enjoy the Christian life and the power of the Christian life because of that. It's a root of bitterness in the heart. It destroys joy. God is good to all, you know. God, God, because he's good to all, there's no reason to be jealous. If you want great things, God's going to give that to you if you trust him. The Sadducees really had no reason for jealousy really either. They could have joined this movement. They could have been part of the Messianic kingdom. They could have received all the blessings that God was willing to bestow on anyone. The invitation was wide open. The Messianic kingdom had the signs and miracles of the, of the new age. Those miracles were done to give testimony to the apostles who were chosen of Christ, but they were also little glimpses of what the Messianic kingdom would be like when all healing flowed. And they, they saw them. They had access to that. They were little glimpses of a coming age. They could have joined it. But they had a blind, selfish, jealous, inward mindset. They couldn't see what God was doing, only what they wanted to accomplish. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, 3, for you are still fleshly, he wrote to them. And these were believers. You're still fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? You're acting like unbelievers because you have all this jealousy. Those of us who understand the benevolence and generosity of God, when our minds get into that realm, we have no reason to envy anybody else. Do you know what you're going to get? Let me give you a little reminder if you've forgotten. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance, you know the rest, which is imperishable 
and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You get it all, everything. You get it, and no one can ever take it away from you. You have no reason to be jealous or envious of anybody else if your faith is active. That's you. That's what we get. That's what Christians receive. However, it appears that often the Jews, as they looked at the Christian movement, did become jealous of this sect of the Christians. I think it's what prompted the early persecution against the Christians. In Acts 13, later, verses 45, 44 and 45, Paul has gone in his first missionary journey to Pisidian Antioch, and it says, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy, not filled with excitement that the Gentiles were being led to the Jewish scriptures. They were filled with jealousy, and they began to contradict the things which were spoken by Paul and were blasphemed. And here in our passage, notice the, the Sanhedrin and the Sadducees They're motivated by jealousy. And it says they rose up. What does that mean? They rose up. That means it was time to take action. It pictures them not tolerating the situation anymore. Like they're getting off their chair and and they know they have their authority and they're saying, this has got to stop and we're going to exercise our authority. And it says they laid hands on them. That doesn't mean they did it. They used their their minions, their, their temple police, their officials. And then they arrested them. They laid hands on, forcibly arrested the apostles. And then it says they put them in the public jail. No doubt that was to send a public message. Here are these apostles. You think they're so great. Look at us using our authority. And we're putting them in public jail so you know where they are. You know that you are not to join this movement. You know that those who know the scriptures best do not approve of this Christian thing, this this Jesus movement. It was an attempt to discredit the main spokespersons for the movement. And so that is their action. It was a definitive action. I want you to think a little bit more about this. They incarcerated the entire formal witnessing body of Jesus. They put them all in jail. Today that would be like rounding up every single preacher and putting them in jail. These were the guys Jesus chose were going to bear his testimony to all the nations and they exercised their authority and put all of them, not just Peter and John this time, all of them and locked them up behind bars, unable to give their testimony, unable to speak to anybody. This was no small move on their part. It was a clear exertion of their authority. They were were showing who was in charge. If this were to stand, Jesus' prediction that all the nations would hear of him would fail. You have to believe. You have to believe Satan is behind this move. But second action. Now we go to what God does, right? And you know God's always the hero in the Bible, right? And so here it is. We go to the second action in the Bible. Here we have it. God comes up with a solution. He sends an angel, an angel of the Lord. Verses 19 and 20, look at it. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go, stand, and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. You're not retreating anywhere. You're not going to hide in some place. You're going to go right to the very center where they would never think you're going to be and you're going to speak the words of this life. Here's the thing about evil men. Always remember this. Evil men in the world. And never let your mind think this way. They never factor God into the equation. Never. 
When you look at politics and you become worried, don't be like them. Don't let their minds, right or left, lead you into an atheistic framework where God's not in there and nothing can be done. Oh my, what are we going to do? God is always in the equation. Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. You know, God doesn't reach out his hand and begin to do something and someone slaps it. This just doesn't happen. Happens to us, you know, you're trying to get the cookie before the wife has, you know, wants you to take the cookie. You can't, there are authorities on earth. (laughs) But nobody stays God's hand when he wants to move. Nobody, he's free. He's the only being who's really totally free. He does whatever he pleases. There is a God in heaven who looks down from heaven. He could see everything that is going on. That passage in Hebrews 4 said, we have to deal with him. He is the one with whom we have to to do. We have to deal with God. No one can sidestep God or reinvent God. If you go against God's word, you'll have to deal with God. God decided this was a point in time for him to act in a supernatural way. He doesn't always do this. He rarely does this. He decided this measly attempt to box up his word, he was going to make them look silly. And the way he does it really just makes them look silly. He uses his omnipotence, and as it says in Hebrews 12, 22, he has myriads of angels, powerful heavenly beings at his disposal all the time, but God didn't send a whole host of those angels, did he? He sent just one. Here's this big attempt on the Sadducees using all their authority, and God says, you know, I don't know if they, he whistles for angels, I don't know how it works, but go on down there and do what you got to do. And so he reverses this action. He sends one measly angel. The angel materializes in this world. How does that happen? We don't know. He materializes inside of the prison. How does that work? I don't know. He passed from some other dimension, some other universe, so to say. And from that universe, from that spiritual realm, whatever we want to call it, he crosses over and he comes right into and he's able to materialize and he's able to touch things and do things and he's able to go back. How does that happen? I don't know. I don't have a body like that. But he comes over at the Lord's bidding. Evidently, angels can't just do that. They have to come when the Lord tells them to do that. And he arrives in the public jail, and it's at night. It's incognito. You know, we call angels God's secret agents, right? Secret agent man. There he is. He doesn't, God doesn't even have the angels start doing the preaching. God could have had the angel come and float above the Sadducees and said, that's it for you guys. God's removing your heads. He didn't do that. Just quietly go in there and release the apostles. The angel's not even going to go to the temple and preach because that's not the job of angels. No, he just lets the apostles out. He opens the gates, the thura, the heavy doors of the prison. And then the angel leads them out. Notice the guards are of no consequence. You say, where are the guards? I don't know, but they're of no consequence. Whatever their training was, whatever their disciplines, whether they were awake or asleep, whatever their loyalties, matters not. God sent an angel. The bars are of no consequence. Nice bars. They must have quality bars there, right? Nobody breaks those bars. Of no consequence. The Jewish ruler's authority, inconsequential. The angel is unopposed. It's like an easy task for him, it looks like. It was like he's just whistling. He just comes in there, opens the door, says, come on out. Here we go. It's interesting, the apostles hardly seem surprised either. 
They knew they were commissioned to speak the word. They knew of the supernatural. They'd seen it many times with Christ. God's angels, they knew, are there to render service to the elect. We read about that in Hebrews 1. Now, please understand this. God is always sovereign in the decisions that he makes. No one can tell him how to do things. God can choose to heal or God can choose to leave sick that we might learn lessons from our trial. God can release you from a trial or God can allow that trial to press on you more for his own purposes and they're always good. God can preserve life or God can say it's time for life to end. Or God can deliver from a prison or he can allow a person to stay locked up. That's God's decision. God did not always deliver believers when they were put in jail or in prison. In Paul's case, in Acts 21 all the way through 28, if we ever get to that portion, we're going to see the Lord left Paul in jail a long time, a long time. But when he was in there, he wrote letters, and those letters went out everywhere, and so the Word of God was also still released. By the way, we use those letters today. Later, we're going to see Stephen, and Stephen is giving his testimony before the leaders, and he's stoned to death. God does not rescue him from them. Rather, he allows him the promotion into heaven. James the apostle, the brother of John, is put into jail. Peter's released. James's head is cut off. God's decision. God decides. God's in control of the universe. God has his will done. It's not always the will of God to remove us from a trial or remove us from a sickness or remove us from prison. Sometimes being in prison gives him glory as well, you see. It's okay if you're in prison, if you suffer, if I suffer. It's okay. It's all right. Why? Why is it okay? Because all of us are just, as Luke calls it in Luke 1, verse 2, servants of the word. That's all we are. We serve the word. We're all below the word. We're all servants of the word. We're trying to make the word spread, the word understood, the word obeyed, the word applied, The word build churches. The Spirit of God uses His words in the Scripture. We're all servants of the Word of God. Do you get that? So these are servants of the Word. And the angel has only one command to these servants of the Word. Only one instruction, really. It comes kind of in three quick commands, but it's really just one instruction. He says, go, stand, speak. Go, stand, speak. Go to the temple, stand there in front of the people, and speak. The rulers have tried to incarcerate the Word from your mouth You go there into the center of the temple and you bellow it out. They already knew what to speak. The angel doesn't have to fill in what the message is. He just sums it up. He says, go speak, listen to this, the whole message of this life. Don't hold back. Give them the whole message of this life. Bellow it out. What an incredible and beautiful summary that is of the Christian message, yes? The whole message of this life. Not half of it. Preachers could learn a lot from that, right? They want to preach only the portions of the Christian message that they like, that they think will be popular, that will bring more people in, that will bless them that Sunday. No, preach the whole message. Teach the whole message of this life. God wants it all taught. Here's an angel telling them, go teach it all. So what does God want? What does God want from preachers? Go teach it all. And it's the message of this life. 
hutos zoe, that's the correct translation, this life. Not any life, not some other life, not some life offered by some person, not Buddhist life if there is such a thing, not any religion. It's a specific message. It's a specific life. God wants the message of this life, his life, taught and preached. I don't have any patience for people today who apologize for preaching about God's life. The most loving thing to do is to give people the message of this life. The angel came down from heaven to release the 12 apostles so they could get out and they could open their mouth, stand in front of people and preach the message of this life. You have freedom to preach the message of this life. You don't need a pulpit to preach. You can go grab anybody and preach to them, yes? Go stand and say something to the people out there too. You haven't seen Jesus Christ, but they have. Tell them about that witness. 1 John 5, 12. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God, what? Does not have the life. People out there don't have the Son of God. Go tell them how to have the Son of God so they can have the life. Let me ask you, do you have the life? Do you know the life of God is in your soul? Do you have the life of God in your soul, the eternal life of Jesus Christ in your soul, or do you just have religion? Do you just have baptism? Do you just have a, a, a Christian family? Or is the life of God in your soul? You need Jesus Christ. You need to invite Jesus Christ in as the Son of God, as your King, as your Lord, and of course as your Savior from sin. If you already have the life, Satan would love you spending your time wasting it and not working to get the message out to other people who don't yet have the message of life. Paul in Philippians 2.16 said, we are holding fast the word of life. You have words in your mouth that are God's words that you can talk and share to someone else and you may think they don't want to hear it, but if they hear it and believe it, they will be transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son. The light of God will shine in their heart and you will give them the light of life. God does it, but he uses you. In 2 Timothy 1.1, Paul starts that letter by saying, based, he's, he's an apostle based on the promise of life in Christ Jesus. Man, we have a message of life. We're not a bunch of dead people giving a dead message. We're people that are alive from the dead, and we have a message of life in our mouth, and we need the courage to speak it because there is no law saying you can't. And even if there were, you'd still have to speak it. So why not speak it now while there's, you know, no law against it? Be courageous. Acts 11.18, it says life is for Jews and Gentiles. It says in Acts 11.18, well then, God has granted the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. There is a path and a road in life that leads to death, eternal death, destruction forever. We're on a road that leads to life. Our road gets better and better. The outer body is decaying, true enough. But the inner man is what? Being renewed, right? Galatians 2.20, Paul wrote what's true of every single true Christian in this room. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, that is in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What an amazing life. 
Colossians 3, 3, we're told, Christians are told, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Go, stand, preach. Go, stand, teach. Open your mouth. Let people know the message of this life. That's what the angel wanted for the apostles. And so the apostles obeyed. Look at verse 21. Upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began what? To teach. There they are. They're open in their mouth. Immediate obedience. These men were servants of the word. They did what they were told. And they did what they did so that the word about Jesus would spread. It wasn't about them. If their life ended, it mattered not. You realize when they obeyed the angel, they did not know what was going to happen next. When they would be escorted back in front of the Sadducees, Peter and John had already been in front of them. This is step two. What might happen? They might have lost their lives. They were going and speaking and saying, it matters not. I'm going to go speak. They were servants of the word. They believed they had eternal life. If if their life in this world ended, no one could take away their life that they had. They were devoted to the message of Christ. Brothers and sisters, can I ask you, are you devoted to the message of Christ? Are you a leader here in this church and you have a different reason for your service other than being a servant of the word? Is it more about your teaching, you standing in front of other people, or is it about serving your Lord, advancing his word? That should be true of every teacher. Whether teacher or not, we're here to be servants of the word. We're here to pray for the spread of the word of God, for the building of the churches, yes? We're here to volunteer to help that word get out. Not everybody has to be a teacher to help the word spread. Church is always about promoting the word. What's your church about? Your church is always about promoting the word of God, never being content to just have it in our walls. Promote it in our hearts, promote it in our minds, promote it in education, promote it in any venue that God will allow it to go. It's never about boxing it in. It's never about our comfort coming to church. It's never about our own favorite ministry. It's all about the gospel, people. Now the story switches back to the high priest's action. Also still in verse 21, the high priest tries to bring them in. Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together, even all of the senate of the sons of Israel. I mean, this is the whole group of of macho men. I mean, they're here the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house. Orders. Go get them and bring them back because we got them. Now, you and I are reading this. We know the Sadducees are in the dark, but they, they didn't think so. They were in charge. They have no idea what God is doing. They're like many religious people today who think their religion somehow pleases God, but they're opposed to the things of God. As Jesus said to the Sadducees in the debates he had with them in the temple during that Passion Week in Matthew 22, he looked at the Sadducees and said, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. They didn't get it. They were in the dark. They didn't understand their own Bible and they didn't understand God's power at work in the world. They didn't get it. They only believed in their own power. So very easily, they just detach some guards. Go get them out of prison while I finish my latte in my seat. Go do what I say. I'm on my seat of power. Long robes. Bring them in. 
Do you ever want to be like that? You know, whenever you have that carnal moment, you're like, I just want to be the king over something, you know? <laughs> Off with their heads. They had that. Maybe not the power of killing people, but they had that authority. But what power do men really have? Mere men. When you watch the news and you're like afraid, what power do mere men have? Can I give you a quote here from Isaiah 51 to remind you the difference between God and men? This is God talking. I, even I, am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? And from God's perspective, he's like, I don't die. <laughs> and you're afraid of man who dies. He goes on. And of the son of man who's made like grass, that you have forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundation of the earth, that you fear continually all day long because of the fury of the oppressor as he makes ready to destroy. But where is the fury of the oppressor, God says. I'll take care of you. So notice how unsuccessful they are. Verse 22 through 24. But the officers who came did not find them in the prison, and they returned and reported back, saying, We found the prison house locked quite securely and the guards standing at the doors. But when we had opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed. If you'd like to underline in the Bible, that might be fun to underline. Greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. I would have bought tickets to see their faces at this point in time. I would have paid, I would have slapped down a few 20s for that, definitely. <laughs> the look on the officers' faces when they came back to give the report. Um, how can we explain this to you? So they go through it in detail, right? We went there, okay? They're giving them like, and there was everything locked. And there were the two guards. They're standing there. So we opened it up. And we looked inside. They're not there. There's no explanation. They had to report it that way because there's no explanation. Now they have on their official records in the Sanhedrin a miracle of God. <laughs> they didn't know it was the angel, but they have it all written down. They weren't in there. That's not possible. It's not possible. But they did give the account accurately, yes? They didn't speculate. They just reported what they saw and they heard, as incredible as it would sound. That is how things are when you put God into the equation, right? Locked up, secure prisoners with guards standing at the door. The prisoners should be inside. I mean, they didn't dig a hole. They didn't pick the locks. Men can't walk through walls, last I checked. What are you left with? They didn't have an answer. They were greatly perplexed. When you don't factor the present power of God into your thinking, sometimes you just look foolish. Greatly perplexed, it says, verse 24, greatly perplexed. They were left scratching their heads. They were looking at each other, probably like, who's going to say something here? What do we say? Then next we see them being brought from the temple when they discover. Look at verses 25 and 26. Someone came and reported to them, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went along with the officers and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. 
So there they are. They're looking dumbfounded at each other, not knowing what next to do or to say. I mean, the whole reason that they have gathered on that day and brought all of the big wheels into the room and had everybody assembled was they had to deal with this monstrous problem from their perspective of what was going on in Jerusalem. All they need is the prisoners to talk to them, but there are no prisoners. I think it's in that moment that the truth was supposed to begin to sink into their minds. Hey, guys, (laughs) you're not in control. (laughs) You're not. You have no power over the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you think you're going to stop this movement, you're sorely mistaken. You're quite ignorant of what God is doing. God had just made a mockery of their rulership. Excuse me, Mr. High Priest, have you learned nothing yet? No, they hadn't learned anything. And guess what? Nobody follows these guys today. Nobody says, I'm a disciple of Annas or Caiaphas. Untold millions today follow a man named Jesus of Nazareth, yes? So somebody comes. They come running into the meeting hall. We don't know who it was. It does not matter. But I imagine this person was loyal to the Jewish council in some way. And he's walking in the temple area. It's early in the morning. He hears the apostles. He probably has a double take, you know, because he knows about the, uh, he obviously knows about the imprisonment. And it must have been stunning for a moment. Wait, wait, aren't those, aren't those the guys that they arrested? No, it can't be, because they would be in the jail. And then he goes a little closer probably, looks at him, says, wait, these, I know these guys. I've seen these guys before in the portico of Solomon. They've been up here teaching before. These are the guys. It, it can't be, but it is. I'm quite sure it is. He obviously was confident. He rushes in. I don't know if he barged in, you know, and he just kind of interrupted the whole thing. They're, they're all scratching their heads, so there must have been a moment of quiet there. And then they come running in and say, those guys you arrested, you know, they're out, they're out there in the temple. And they're teaching the people. That must have been so frustrating. I mean, the last thing in the world they wanted was teaching the people. The whole reason of imprisoning them was to stop this. This is their best prison, their best guards. What do they have left? Nobody had any explanation for this. We are privy to it because of Luke's inspired writing. We know the behind the scenes work of God. It's amazing how God can answer prayer. You know, God hardly ever answers prayer the same way. We think about that sometimes. We're reading the Bible and we're like, I wish that God would do for me what he did for Abraham. But God did not do for Moses what he did for Abraham. And then David comes along and God did not do for David what he did for Moses. And then someone else comes along and he doesn't do it quite the same way. God always has all these different ways of doing things. He doesn't have to do anything supernaturally. He can, but he could just arrange a few things to naturally work out. I don't, you know, and it just works out. And sometimes we're dumbfounded. Can you believe that? It's like, this is our God. And we're servants of the word. He did it more for his own glory and for his own word than he does it for us. So this time the captain took it upon himself to accompany the lower down officers. And he found them in the temple. Again, whole crowd of people around them teaching more of that Jesus garbage as they would have thought of it. This time without laying hands on them and grabbing them. There must have been something polite like, well, we'd like to escort you now. Why don't you come, why don't you come along with us? A little more dignity for the apostles this time than being thrown in public jail, yes? 
They were followers of Jesus, and this showed everyone by this very public escort that the rulers may disapprove of these apostles, but they cannot contain them. For they not only spoke the message of life in the temple, they would get another opportunity to unleash the word of God at the very heart and center of Judaism with all of the most important men in Judaism assembled in one room at one time. They would be able to give the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of the kingdom to these men. The entire leadership structure of Israel was about to hear again their eye and ear testimony about the one who is life himself. That's how John begins his first letter, that Jesus is himself life. That's why when you have the son, you have the life because he is life. If you don't have him, if you want to rule your life, you don't have life. Remember what Jesus said, if you want to save your life, you're going to lose it. If you give it away for my sake, you'll find it. Remember? 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He's the word of life. God made sure their testimony was not imprisoned. He does the same today. Paul would later write the same truth in 2 Timothy 2.9. He was about to have his head cut off. He'd been imprisoned many times. He was imprisoned when he wrote 2 Timothy. And in chapter 2, verse 9, he says, I suffer hardship even to the imprisonment as a criminal. And then he adds this, but the word of God is not imprisoned. You cannot lock up the word of God. Every last one of us could be put into prison and God will find a way to have his word preached and taught, not just in a book on a page, but somebody to teach it somewhere. That's how it always has been. It cannot be contained. Every attempt by the persecutors to put this movement down will fail. The first attempt is let's just lock it up. You can't. You can't deal with Christianity and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church by locking up all the leaders. It just won't work. It hasn't worked in church history. It won't work now. It won't work in China. There are more converts we hear in China today than there are in America. You cannot box up the Word of God. It always triumphs. Brothers and sisters, it always triumphs. Father in heaven, thank you for the gloriousness of your gospel and the power of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. We thank you for these reminders in Scripture that all the attempts at suppressing the movement of Jesus will fail until every last elect one hears and every last elect one is brought into the fold from every tribe and tongue and nation and people to bring a chorus of hallelujahs and praise into your presence forevermore. And this we know is also your word and will come to pass. Deepen our faith, courage, and confidence in the midst of growing darkness in our country. We pray for our country, but we pray more for the church of Jesus in this country to speak and live with boldness and humility the message of this life. We've prayed it in Christ's name, amen.